This is Palm Sunday, and I want to preach a message um, that relates to that. And so, Matthew chapter 21 is the text. The 21st chapter of Matthew, I'll read verses 1 through 11. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. We're under constant pressure to believe that happiness comes in throwing in with the crowd. If the advertiser can convince you that the crowd is stampeding to his product, he's got it made. For no one likes to be on the outside of a good thing. The fear of being out of step with the crowd affects everything we do. It affects our buying, our politics. It affects the choosing of our friends. It affects our ethics, and it affects our religious faith. Now, why is the approval of the crowd so important to us? Because the crowd has great power, that's why. The crowd has power to do good, and so it shouts, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. And the crowd has power to do evil, and so it shouts, Crucify him, crucify him, release unto us Barabbas. The crowd has the power to make heroes and bestow fortunes upon those heroes. And the crowd has the power to destroy those heroes and to take back the fortune it has bestowed upon them. It has the ability to establish or to give celebrity status. And it has the ability to take away that celebrity status. Who is Hollywood Henderson? And where is he today? This superstar of the Dallas Cowboys, this gifted athlete who, had, who played linebacker with the speed of a running back, 
the darling of the media. Where is he today? Well, he's fighting back from a drug habit and he's serving a sentence for sexual crimes and for Hollywood Henderson, the cheering has stopped. And who is George Romney and where is he today? He's a superstar of the automotive industry. He led American Motors to its finest days and the path of his own career to the governor's mansion in Michigan and to the prime candidacy of the presidency of the United States. Move over, George Romney, wherever you are. You may be a good guy, but you're no superstar. We don't need you anymore. For the crowd hath given celebrity status and the crowd hath taken it away. For the crowd is fickle, asked Terry Bradshaw. In the prime of his career, he jetted all over the country, giving speeches and making movies and writing autobiographies and making public appearances. And in one of his books, he tells how fickle the crowd is. He describes it in the attitude of the girl who worked the cashier, who worked the cash register where he parked his car. He said some days she would greet him with, with a cheery smile. She was so friendly and, and, and warm. But he said after a, maybe a bad ball game, she would accost him with a sneer. He tells about one day he pulled up in a service station to get some gas. And he said as I was letting the man fill up my gas tank, two teenage boys rushed up to my window and knocked on it enthusiastically, thought they were coming for his autograph. So while he was letting down the window, getting ready to give his autograph, he, they leaned in the window and spit in his face. Gene Stith has written a book entitled, When the Cheering Stops. It's about the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And he says that in all of Europe, there's never been a more loved president than Mr. Wilson. The first time he came to France, and rode in his horse-drawn carriage through the Arc de Triomphe, standing in the middle of that carriage with his high hat raised high, people from the balconies threw violets and holly down upon him, and people in the streets took off their coats and jackets and threw them into the crowd and cheered. A reporter on the street said, the roar of that crowd was so deafening, I thought the whole earth would tremble. And the premier of France said, there's nothing like this. There's been nothing like this in the history of the world. In England, he was called the God of peace. When he went to Italy for the first time, he was welcomed with greater acclaim than the conquering Caesars. And in all of Europe, it was said of him, President Wilson will bring the peace and goodwill of which the angels sang in Bethlehem. But his dreams for peace began to fade. And the clouds of war began to gather on the horizon and people forgot about Woodrow Wilson and turned on him. The crowd is awful fickle, you know. And so one day, sitting on the back porch of his house in Washington, D.C., he said, I'd rather fail in a cause that will ultimately triumph than to triumph in a cause that will ultimately fail. For you see, the crowd that shouts Hosanna on Sunday often shouts crucify him on Thursday. Hold on, Sally Field, to that Oscar you won. Hold to it tightly and enjoy the fame while you have it. We heard your acceptance speech. We saw you on television and heard you say, your acceptance means more to me than anything in the world. 
I didn't feel it the first time, but I feel it now, and I must admit, you like me, you like me. It's true, Sally Field, we like you, but remember, we're the fickle crowd. We may like you today, but that's no promise we'll like you tomorrow. There's a thin line between heroes and has-beens, and the crowd determines that thin line. Why is it so important that we have the acceptance of the crowd? Well, that's easy to answer. Our longing to be liked, our need to be accepted, our distorted sense of what is value, what and he healed, and he cast out demons of the demented. He loved and he forgave. He said, I need to go through Samaria. No Jew, no good Jew ever went that way. He wanted to go find the woman at the well, but no good Jewish rabbi talked to a woman like that nor did he ever take sides with one who was caught in adultery. He set his face toward Jerusalem and his friends warned of the opposition. He knew about it. He talked about his death, not just once, not twice, but three times. He asked for a donkey on which to ride into the city of Jerusalem. Some triumphant entry was that. But the word was out. And so the crowd was there on the streets. There were those who loved him. There were those there who hated him. And there were those there who were just curious. But the crowd has a way of finding a common denominator. On this day, that common denominator is Hosanna. And so it went up to make the whole earth tremble. No thing had been seen like this in the history of the world. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for a moment, hope sprang in the heart of those people oppressed under Roman domination. But Jesus spoke, said very little. He just went straight to the temple. And there he cleansed the temple, cast out the money changers, and thus set himself in opposition to the religious hierarchy of his day. And he began to predict the downfall, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the downfall of the blessed temple they loved. And he began to teach those strange stories, not like he taught in his earthly ministry. He began to say that children were going to rise up against parents and parents would rise up against children and there would be wars and carnage and death. Why, he said, there's not a stone on this temple that will not be cast down. And he prepared for the Last Supper and the Passover and he told them strange things. He said, I'm going to leave you and the comforter, the news, Jesus, is going to come and take my place. And then he led his disciples on a little walk down Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, across the Valley Kidron, up to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. And there he prayed in great agony. Then it happened. Down that same trail, down Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, they saw them coming, men with lighted torches in their hands. It looked like trouble. And as they got closer, it got, they got close enough that they could see their faces in the flickering light, soldiers and priests and even one of them. 
and there was this kiss. Everything seemed so friendly until someone barked to arrest him. And there was a moment of clash between the disciples and the soldiers. And then the soldiers overcame and the disciples fled. They drug him off to the house of Caiaphas. He went through that religious trial and its mockery and the brutality of the Roman trial. There was this scourging. There was the cat of nine tails. There was the crown of thorns and the purple robe. There was the spittle and the mockery. And they took him out of the way of death, the way of sorrow, to a place called Golgotha. And on that cross he hung in the mysterious darkness with just a little motley group left, his mother, a few women, and John. And in that mysterious darkness... He yielded up his spirit and died. We know that's not the end of the story. There was a resurrection and an empty tomb and his appearance to the disciples and followers, the giving of the Great Commission, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, his ascension into glory and his promise of a second return. For we know in the life of this man that he was undaunted by the crowd. He was invincible. Thus he changed the world. It is possible this morning for you and I to do the same, to be undaunted and invincible and uninfluenced by the crowd and in that commitment change our world. Now what are the implications of it? And what are the signs that point to one undaunted by the crowd? There are just three or four. I'll just mention them briefly. He was undaunted by the crowd, uninfluenced by it, because he knew who he was. He knew that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now can you imagine what that must have been like for him? As a young boy growing in wisdom, he studied the scriptures that his parents gave him and it became a growing process to his great mind that what these Old Testament writers were talking about, who they were talking about was he. I don't know when in his earthly life, his early childhood, it suddenly was apparent to him, but I know that one day he came to grips with the fact of who he was, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He was Messiah. He knew that he was Prince of Peace, so he didn't need to ride into Jerusalem on a white stallion or a Z-28 just because somebody else did. Just because every other conquering Caesar rode into the city on a white stallion. He didn't have to do that. He knew he was Prince of Peace. He didn't need a sword even though everybody else, every other conquering Caesar used a sword to conquer. He was the creator of the world. And he knew that he'd come to fulfill the reconciliation dream of heaven itself, to reconcile men with men and men with God. He knew who he was. Do you? Do you know who you are? You are created in the image of God. 
and your call to commit your life to this humble Messiah, this true Savior. You don't need to get your identity from the crowd. You get your identity from Him. The story is told that a tutor was hired to tutor the son of a king. This prince was incorrigible, undisciplined, unruly, And everybody was wondering how long it would take before the prince gave the tutor a hard time. And they wondered if he really indeed would discipline the king's son. And it wasn't long until he challenged the tutor with an undisciplined practice. You know what the tutor did? He took a little piece of purple cloth, the symbol of royalty, the color purple is the symbol of royalty. And he pinned that cloth on that young boy's shirt and said, you're a child of the purple. You're a son of the king. And every time you're tempted to do that which is wrong, you just look to the, to the purple and remember that you're the son of the purple. I tell you this morning, you're the son of the purple, the child of a king. And whenever you're tempted to do wrong, just remember who you are, where you get your identity. It's from Him. He knew who He was. Secondly, He could accept the applause of man without having His head turned by it. You know why? Because He could see through the crowd. He knew that there were those in the crowd who really loved Him. He knew there were those in the crowd who hated him and were looking for an opportunity to kill him. And he knew that most of the folks there were just out of curiosity. They'd wave any placards you gave them. They'd shoot any fireworks off you handed them. They just kind of were a part of what the crowd did. He could see right through that. Can you? Now, I must speak this morning to my young friends, the young people here, to the youth, middle school and high school and college. Can you see through the crowd? Don't you know that there are those in the crowd who really love you? In the crowd that surrounds your life, don't you know that there are those who really love you? And there are those who actually hate you and long to see you fall. And there are those in the crowd who don't care one way or the other. They're just a part of the group of your life. Now, do you know who there are, who those are in the crowd who really love you? They're the people who want to see, who want your very best, who want the best for you. Now, it seems to me that if you can see through the crowd to those who really love you, that group of people would be the people that matter the most. Now, the question is, how do you know those people in the crowd of your life that really love you? Well, they're the ones who want the best for you. And there are times when your parents... There are times when your teachers will make decisions that will put you in direct conflict with what everybody else is doing. And, the re- and you may chafe under that and resent that and reject that. And you just remember that those decisions are made by the people who really love you because they know they know what's best for you. He was able to accept the applause of the crowd without having his head turned by it. Third... 
He was able to suffer the abuse of the crowd without being destroyed by it. Now, the crowd is abusive. Just think of the abuse this man endured. Not, not, not the, the rejection of this impersonal group, that's not, that's not important. That wasn't important to him. It was the rejection and the non-acceptance of his own friends. That's what hurts the most, isn't it? You know because you've been there. You know why he was able to endure the abuse of the crowd without being destroyed by it? Let me, let me tell you why he was able to do that. Because he knew that he was right. Now, let me ask a question. And this question must be directed to us all. Are you able to resist and reject the impact and the power of the crowd because you know you're right? Or when the crowd moves, do you move? When the crowd turns, do you turn? When the value of the values levels of the crowd shift, does yours shift? Are you like a chameleon who just kind of reflects the ethical and spiritual colors of your environment? Or are you willing to stand for what is right because it is right regardless of the cost? If you are able to do that, you are a rare bird. Are you like the teenage girl I know about who knows the difference between right and wrong? But the crowd is so powerful. I mean, they're drinking, I can't say no. They're experimenting with drugs, I can't say no. And so one night, when he asked her to compromise, being under the influence of both, she couldn't say no. And she gave herself to a cheap pleasure that she hardly even remembers. And her life is spiraling downward and she's thrown away ten of the best years of her life. He was able to take that abuse, and there is abuse, and there will be abuse. He was able to take that abuse without being destroyed by it because he knew he was right. He was invincible. One last thing. He went on to the ultimate goal of his life, faithfully on. Now watch this. He had this ultimate goal for his life. And therefore, he was not affected by the immediate. You see, when you have an ultimate goal, the immediate is not that powerful. So that because he had this ultimate goal, that is, to please the Father to do the will of the Father, because he had that ultimate goal, he was able to accept the pain and the applause without being diverted by it. I don't know whether I have that or not. I think most of us, we just kind of operate and, 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 and live on the basis of the immediate. 
I probably, if I'd have been there, I'd have probably rented a banquet hall to celebrate the victory of Palm Sunday. I mean, after all, while you got, while you got some clout, while you're on the top, you better enjoy it, after all. Or I probably, when the pressure began to mount, I probably would have gotten my little group of friends and kind of hunkered down somewhere until the storm passed, but not Jesus. He didn't... He wasn't diverted by the applause of Sunday or the pain of Thursday because he had his mind set on the ultimate goal. What I'm asking of you today is to set your face on that which is ultimate and that which is immediate will not be that important. I'm going to have to submit to you this morning. I will honestly say and confess that if you become like this man who rode into Jerusalem Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, you may no longer be able to walk with the crowd. But you will be able to walk with the king. There was a song we used to sing. We've kind of got too sophisticated for it. I walk with the King, hallelujah. I walk with the King, praise His name. No longer I roam, my face faces home. I walk and I talk with the King. If you become like this man who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you may never walk with the crowd again, but you will walk with the king. That seems like that'd be more important to me. This and I'm through. Charlie Howard, who taught at Campbell College in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, or Kentucky, wherever, for years, tells a story about this pastor in the state of Kentucky who one morning got up and did an audacious thing. He preached against the use of tobacco. Now in Kentucky, you don't talk about tobacco if you want to stick around, you know, for a while. That's the way the people made their... That was the source of their livelihood. So it didn't take long for this preacher to be out. He was terminated of his responsibility. Charles Howard said, I went to his house to give him some comfort. When I got to his house, I heard him, got out, I heard him out in this little wood shop, piddling around, getting ready, getting his stuff packed up to move. I heard him singing, My father is rich in houses and lands, he holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and diamonds, silver and gold, his coffers are full, he has riches untold. A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, though exiled from home, yet still I may sing all glory to God. I'm a child of the King. A child of the King. A child of the King. 
With Jesus, my Savior, I'm a child of the King. You may not walk with the crowd. I'm going to ask you to come. Let's walk with the King. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I sense that for some this is such an important moment. In this crowd of people, there are those who really love you. There are those who hate you and everything about you. The most, the greatest number of us are just kind of along to watch kind of at the mercy of the majority. I pray for one today to come to say, I cast my vote, I take my stand with Jesus Christ, regardless of what it costs. I'll walk with Him if it means to walk alone. I pray for that one who would make that kind of decision that not only would be like Jesus, but would change our world. Through His name I pray who died for us, even Jesus. Now there are three invitations. The first invitation this morning is for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He came right down into the city of Jerusalem on purpose. He went down the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow, on purpose. He had that ultimate goal in his mind, heart. That was your justification, your salvation. He died for you. But you must come and claim his death, claim his gift. Claim His salvation by faith, trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone. I invite you to come this morning to place your life in the church. He established that church on purpose that the gospel of Christ could be extended to a world in need. I invite you to come and join the church. I invite you this morning, those of you who are in the crowd to come and say, I want to put myself in the way of the King, to gain my identity from Him, to follow Him, if it means to follow Him all by myself. Would you do it? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.